Thanks, Antiruit. Well, good morning. My name is Nathaniel. I'm part of the team here, and it's great to be able to unpack this passage for us this morning. Now, I'm going to describe a kingdom. Think about what it might be. I'm thinking of a mighty empire. It's peaceful, it's prosperous, it's powerful enough to defeat any enemy, or at least it seems so. It seems golden and it seems glorious, but it has slowly become corrupted because the rulers in charge of the nation have lost their morals. They've turned to pleasures and personal vices, and suddenly it all comes tumbling down. Am I talking about Solomon's kingdom? Could be, I suppose. Perhaps I'm actually describing another ancient empire, maybe the Roman Empire or the Persian Empire, true of those as well, or the Song Dynasty in China, or maybe I'm making a bit of a sideways comment about politics today, or I could be describing a popular fictional situation, the Galactic Empire of Star Wars, the Kingdom of Numenor from the Lord of the Rings, or the Brodering Kingdom from Aragon for the true nerds out there. Now, I did write that sentence thinking about Solomon's kingdom, but it could be any of those, because this is a pattern which is repeated throughout history and which resounds with our consciousness of great and glorious kingdoms which are built on strong foundations, but their leaders go astray, become corrupt, and their failure, personally and as leaders, brings the whole kingdom toppling down. Powerful enemies rise up and the strength to face them is gone. Now, that's not just an interesting pattern from history to look at, but it's one which affects our lives now and which affects our hearts deeply enough for it to be a constant theme through popular fiction as well. As we look for world peace, for stability, for prosperity in a time when there is renewed tension and conflict, yet again, we have to face the stark reality that there is no human government There is no human country, there is no empire, there is no commonwealth which will be able to keep things in order and to keep its citizens safe forever. What we need as people is to be in a kingdom which will keep peace and stability, which will last. And so we need a leader, we need a king who will never compromise, who will never run out of power, who will never be overthrown and can never be defeated, even and especially by the ravages of time and old age. We we need a kingdom whose heart will never be divided. Today, we're wrapping up a sermon series on the rise and fall of Solomon. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been surveying the reign of Solomon, found in 1 Kings chapter 1 to 11. And we've seen as Solomon has taken over from his father, David. He's dedicated his reign to God at the start. In a vision, God actually appears to Solomon He says that Solomon can have anything he wants, and Solomon asks for the godly wisdom to rule well. God gives this to him, along with many other blessings of wealth and prosperity and power, but it goes downhill. As Solomon's power and wealth increases, his wisdom wanes. He turns from using God's wisdom that has been given to him to using human wisdom. Until this point in the story, Israel, his nation, has been thriving under Solomon, as it seems like he's a king whose heart is set on God and who is pointing towards God's will for his people. But Solomon's heart 
is divided. It has been all along. We've seen hints of this throughout. For example, God's law forbade having many wives and he strictly forbade his kings from marrying people from other nations. And yet, Solomon gathered many wives, a status symbol of the day, and married foreign women, forming alliances with the nations around him. He first made a marriage alliance with the Pharaoh of Egypt and then married many, many other women. Solomon built a temple to honor God, great and glorious and grand, but then he spent even longer building his own palace and palaces for his wives. Solomon traded with Egypt to get their horses and their chariots and then traded them to other nations despite God's specific command against doing exactly that. The kingdom of Solomon, from human terms, seemed invincible and prosperous and blessed, but Solomon's compromises as king were causing the foundations to crack. And chapter 11, which we just saw, is where it all comes to a head. As we see Solomon's compromise leading to Solomon's idolatry, and then to the consequences which he faces. So Solomon's compromise, what did he do? Where, where did it all go wrong? Well, as is often the case, right, Solomon made a series of compromises, a series of decisions based on human wisdom against God's wisdom, and that included his rejection of God's clear commands concerning marriage. We saw in verses 1 to 3 that he took many foreign wives, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, Hittites, from all the nations which the Lord had specifically said, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after other gods. But Solomon had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. So God had warned his people how spiritually foolish it was to marry those who followed other gods, who didn't share in the worship of the one true God. But Solomon had other ideas. Now, we saw that compromise started back with making a marriage alliance with the Pharaoh of Egypt, but it didn't stop there. He built up a harem of 700 wives. Now, in the culture of the day, for the people then, this seemed like a really smart, justifiable decision. You know, by the standards of the day, Solomon just had a pretty normal-sized harem of wives. He seemed to be making shrewd international alliances by marrying many foreign princesses, but... Solomon was behaving in a way exactly opposite to how God had told his people that they and their king should live. And Solomon's wisdom in following human wisdom instead of God's wisdom, his decisions there ultimately failed him. As we'll see later on, the, the whole time through his reign, while he was, had this marriage alliance with the Pharaoh of Egypt, the Pharaoh of Egypt was actually sheltering and building up the enemies who would cause the collapse of Solomon's kingdom. His wisdom humanly speaking, failed him. But Solomon's compromise wasn't just diplomatically motivated. We can't brush it off as Solomon just trying to, to make good international relations. He had 700 wives of royal birth and also 300 concubines, women who he took for his own personal gratification, to make a show of worldly influence, for his own desires. And, as we saw... Solomon, Solomon's heart was drawn away by his wives, letting them bring him away from God. Now, in our culture today, the rich and powerful don't show their, their social status and don't try and build connections in that same way as Solomon. But there are many other empty pleasures and pursuits which our culture encourages. 
which also lead us away from God and from His wisdom. More and more, having many sexual partners is presented as a sign of social status, of desirability. We're encouraged to reject God's good design for sexuality, for whatever feels good in the moment. We're pulled into a rat race of of social status, of building bigger houses, of buying shinier cars, of going on more expensive holidays for more impressive social media posts. Solomon was drawn away by his lust, his lust for women and for status, things which were appealing and enticing that he placed above God's commands. We may be tempted in similar ways or by the many other things which our hearts can latch onto, can desire and can justify. So, if you are here today and and you are someone who is serious about following God, if you've placed your faith in Jesus and found life in Him, are you honest with yourself about the ways that you can be tempted away from Him? Do you know the ways where you might be most prone to compromise? Because there are many things which, as we see in Solomon's heart, can easily take hold of the human heart, can lure us away from God. Now, in Solomon's situation, that's not to say that the, the women were terrible, evil people who were trying to tear Solomon's kingdom down. They probably didn't have much or any choice in the matter, which makes Solomon's decisions even worse. This is on Solomon placing his desires above the commands of his God. And at first, this doesn't seem to do any harm, right? Much like many of the ways that we can reject God's commands for our living. Solomon's kingdom seemed prosperous and strong for decades, despite his compromise. But as we saw in verse 4, as he grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and he was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. God's laws, his instructions for us, they're not arbitrary, empty things, they're given for our good, and when we reject them, we might not feel the effect straight away. We might feel better, we might feel good, we might feel pleasure for for a moment or even for a while, but eventually we will discover, we will realize that God's commands are for our good. We will feel the pain and, and the devastation that comes with living in our own way rather than God's way. It took decades before Solomon's heart became fully divided, years in which he did things which seemed great. He built a mighty temple for God. He seemed to be a a great king ruling over a prosperous kingdom, but his foundations upon upon which his kingdom was built, they were compromised and they were cracked and they were weakened. And he fell to the danger of gradual compromise. That's a danger that we're warned against throughout the Bible. For example, in Hebrews chapter 2, where it says, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. You know, the other day I got back to the office from a meeting and I parked my car in the car park and as I parked, I got a notification on my phone and so I felt the notification and I pulled into my spot and I pulled out my phone and text message, I started reading the text message and I happened to glance up and noticed that everything else in the car park was moving. It wasn't actually moving, I was the one moving. When I pulled up, I got distracted by the notification on my phone, right, and I didn't put my handbrake on and so I was sitting there looking at my phone and I was drifting backwards. Now, fortunately, there weren't any cars in the spot behind me. We're all good. No one noticed. (laughs) But that same thing can happen to our hearts, right? We can get distracted. We can forget to anchor ourselves on God and on His Word, and we can drift. So maybe this is a good time for us to check our hearts. 
Is there a space where you're distracted, where you're drifting in your faith? Maybe now is a good time to look out the window and to realize that everything else is moving and to get the handbrake on before a collision. So, I, Solomon's compromise isn't where his story ends because Solomon didn't look out the window and that led Solomon into idolatry. That's the second point we see, Solomon's idolatry. Because Solomon is now led away, his compromise leads him to have his heart drawn fully away from God and that is what God warned Solomon about back in chapter 9, which we looked at last week if you joined us then. And this is the offence which leads to God taking away Solomon's kingdom from him. We read there that he followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Molech, the god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a higher place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. Now, the hill to the east of Jerusalem, uh, it's difficult to get a, a picture of Solomon's Jerusalem, which has it, but there's these hills over here, the Mount of Olives and, and the other hill next to it there. Those hills aren't just little foothills sort of off to the way. They're big hills which tower over the city by going and building idols up on the hillside right above next to Jerusalem Solomon is making a statement about how deeply divided his heart has become he is building these idols in direct opposition to the temple of God which he had built earlier it was a powerful statement and the foreign gods which he was drawn after are actually really significant we could go into lots of detail about those gods but what is most notable is what the passage notes is Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and Molech, another detestable god. What makes these so detestable? Well, as we look at ancient texts and get an understanding of religion in, in ancient times, both of these gods were associated with the practice of child sacrifice. Solomon had not just turned away from God to, to bow down for a moment to an empty stone figure. Solomon had engaged in the worst of paganism, in direct rebellion, against his God. So we read there in verse 4, Solomon's heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the far heart of David his father had been. Now, if you know your Bible, you might be thinking, yeah, that's pretty bad, but I know about David. David's heart was not particularly great. You know, David sinned numerous times in significant ways. In fact, you might know your Bible well enough to know that Solomon was the, was the son of Bathsheba. Bathsheba's the one whom David committed adultery and then murder to get at. How can the Bible say that David, Solomon's father, had his heart fully devoted to God? How can he say that David followed the Lord completely? That's, that's ridiculous, right? Well, the answer here is an encouragement for us as we wrestle with our own failings and sinfulness. Although David did fail numerous times and in inexcusable ways, he repented and turned back to God wholeheartedly, sincerely. He received the consequences for his sin, but turned back to God for forgiveness, to have his heart washed clean. And so David was not the perfect king that God's people needed, but the, the passage here can authentically say that he followed the Lord his God with all his heart, because despite his failings, his human sinfulness, he turned back in repentance. That's encouraging because our nature is also to compromise. You know, a heart which is divided and which only allows God into certain rooms, certain parts of our lives, will soon find tenants for the other rooms. 
for Solomon, that was the worship of these idols. But there are many other idols that can take over our hearts. Now, Adam spoke to this last week, if you joined us, saying that idolatry is when we take anything, even a good thing, and make it a God thing. Whether that's bowing down to the altar of money and possessions, you know, measuring our worth based on our net worth or our satisfaction from the size of our homes, or bowing down at the, the altar of sex and pleasure, basing our identity as humans on our sexuality, pursuing sexual pleasure even when there's a cost to ourselves and our families and those around us. We worship at the altar of power and control, social influence, popularity, social media likes, of work promotions and career goals. On and on we could go. There are so many ways that we can build little idols in our lives, things which we focus our attention, things in which we find our fulfillment and our satisfaction and our meaning. And yet, despite all of our failures, God continues to call us to turn back to Him. He continues to show grace. The story of the Bible throughout is of God continuing to be faithful despite constant human unfaithfulness, of Him continuing to offer forgiveness to those who repent and return to Him sincerely. So, if there is something, as we mentioned earlier, something which you're seeing in your life, an area where you're drifting, or perhaps if you've never given your heart to Christ, and you can see way, a way in which other things have got a, a grasp, a focus on your heart, now is the time to turn away, to, to renounce that. And then as we sang earlier, to turn our eyes upon Jesus, to look upon His glory and grace, that the things of earth will grow strangely dim. Because in Him, we will find forgiveness and wholeness forever. But the failure of Solomon is much more far-reaching than just an individual's weakness. Because as the king over God's people, his faithfulness affected the whole nation. We can look to Solomon, we can see ways in which our hearts are tempted in the same way, but the consequences are much less. Because the consequences of our sinfulness, of our rebellion against God, they affect us individually. They may have consequences on the lives of others around, but for Solomon as God's king, his unfaithfulness affected his whole nation, all of God's people. Much like how the personal integrity and decisions of any significant leader affect those who they lead. You know, just open up the, the world news on your smartphone or, or pick up a newspaper and you'll immediately see how the leaders have direct effect on the lives of those who they lead. Now, we aren't in the same position of authority as Solomon, but we are in a very similar position to Solomon's people. If your faith is in Jesus, then you're one of God's people and you're in need of God's true king. Even King David, who's pointed to as an example of a king who was focused on God, he failed in so many ways in his reign, and eventually he grew old and he died, as we saw at the start of this series, leaving God's people to look for the descendant whom God had promised to David, who would never fail in the way that he had, but who would rule over God's people perfectly and forever. Solomon seemed to be that king at first, but as we've seen, Solomon could not live up to that. His heart was divided. It was not fully focused on God. And he led his people into an idolatry which lasted for generations. You know, we actually read in, in 2 Kings that the high places which Solomon built on the hill east of Jerusalem, they would only be destroyed centuries later by the King Josiah. 
Solomon's divided heart as, his, as king led his people astray for generations, led them into destruction. As God's people, we need a king whose heart will never be divided. And as God outlines the consequences of Solomon's idolatry, he keeps open the promise to bring that king who would rule forever. And that's the final thing we see in this passage as we see the consequences of Solomon's idolatry. These are in verses 9 to 13, where God appears to Solomon for the third time in a way which is very different to the first two. The first time he gave Solomon great wisdom, the second time he gave Solomon warning, and now God executes the consequences of that warning. He appears in judgment. We read that in verse 11, he says, Since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant, my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away and give it to one of your subordinates. And that's what happens. If you've got your Bible open, you can look down at the rest of chapter 11 there and it describes how this unfolds. There's three enemies who are raised up against Solomon. There's Hadad from Edom. There's Razom, a Gentile. And there's Jeroboam, an Israelite. In fact, God gives Jeroboam the same promise that he gave to Solomon, that if you'll follow him faithfully, he'll have Solomon's kingdom forever. And despite Solomon's attempt at an alliance with Egypt, God twists that as part of his judgment. Both Hadad and Jeroboam were chased out of Solomon's kingdom, but they found refuge with the Pharaoh of Egypt, who built them up, who helped them to build forces and strength so they could go and topple Solomon later on. Compromise brings consequence, whether that's immediate or whether that's eternal. Solomon had compromised, and his compromise led to collapse. The blessing which God had given was dependent on the faithfulness of the king, and so that blessing is withdrawn. But even at this time of judgment, God continues to show Solomon grace. He continues to, to measure his penalties. He allows Solomon to live out his reign, and he, he promises that Solomon's son would still have a small kingdom, and with that, a small glimmer of hope for the promise which God had made to David, the promise of a descendant who would reign over God's people perfectly and forever. So we see here that God's judgment and His grace go hand in hand. Solomon strayed from God's commands right from the start. God continued to call him to faithful obedience until He finally brought judgment. And even then, it was mixed with more grace. We see the pattern of God's constant graciousness despite human unfaithfulness. But the consequences faced by Solomon remind us that God is also just and does bring judgment. A reminder that we need to hear because there will be a day when Jesus will return a second time and He will return to judge the world. He will remove all evil. He will remove all wrongdoing. He will take away all that is wrong with our world as our good King. But that means that He will bring judgment upon all those who have done that wrong. Now, he freely offers forgiveness, calling us to turn back to him in authentic repentance. But that's an offer that we have to accept by faith in him. Because only those who are under the rule of God's true king, only those whose trust is in him, will be safe from his good judgment. It's as we sang in that song, turn your eyes to the hillside, where justice and mercy and grace, that is available in Jesus, but it must be embraced. But Solomon, he dies eventually, having failed to walk in God's commands and with a civil war looming after his death. And his life sets the pattern 
for the story to come. For centuries, there are kings who fail to follow God faithfully, eventually leading God to hand the nation over to their enemies. Story of a story of marrying foreign women, of worshipping idols, of turning away from God. But despite the judgment that he eventually brings, God continues to faithfully preserve his people. He keeps the line of David going. And he keeps the promise that he made to David that one of his descendants would rule over his throne forever. That wasn't Solomon. It wasn't any of Solomon's children or their children's children, but it was Jesus. Jesus has taken that perfect place. He rules perfectly over God's people and he has not compromised. Where Solomon did compromise, he eventually turned from God. Jesus' heart was undivided, resisting every temptation. When Solomon died, his kingdom crumbled away together with its glory and its riches like wild flowers and grass in the fields. But at Jesus' death, he established his eternal kingdom, which will never perish, spoil or fade. Solomon's kingdom was threatened and ultimately destroyed by the nations around. Jesus gives his followers a mission to reach the nations around with the good news of what he has done. Jesus is the king whom God's people waited for and whom we need. So if your trust is in him, we don't need to be afraid. For the kingdom that we're a part of is not at risk of collapse. Our king does not have a divided heart like ours. But rather, as we read in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await our saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. A king who has set right the failings of his people. In fact, who has paid for the penalty of their sin, whose heart will never be divided, and who not only has, but offers eternal life. So as we finish our series in the rise and fall of Solomon, we're left with the question, who is your king? What is that king like? Is the, the ruler of your heart, the focus of your life, yourself? Is it some other idol or a series of idols in which you find your meaning, your satisfaction? Or have you received Jesus as your king? Look at your life. Look at, look at what you focus on. Look at where your priorities lie, because that reflects who your king truly is. Jesus' kingdom is peaceful, prosperous, and powerful. It's golden and glorious, but the truly good news is that unlike any other nation, any other ruler, including and especially Solomon, it will never be corrupted because our king will never compromise. He rules with perfect justice and peace, and he rules over a kingdom which is here in part, which is growing constantly, and which will be fully unveiled when he returns. So therefore, as we're encouraged in Hebrews, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God with reverence and awe. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your faithfulness to us, despite our unfaithfulness to you. We thank you that you continue to offer us grace, forgiveness. Lord, we ask that you will work in our hearts. You will draw us to a, a complete and whole faith in you, Lord. That as we struggle with, with our sinful, broken nature, that you will continue to make your grace known to us. You will continue, continue to call us to true repentance you'll continue to grow us to true knowledge of you and you'll continue to point us to Jesus our King. We ask this in your name. Amen.